Hi, and welcome to the Rainbow Connection. I'm your host, Nathan Bertram. And I'm your other host, Mackenzie Easton. This is the podcast where we're talking about all things Jim Henson and Muppets and whatnot. And today we've got a real special one for y'all. Yes, we had the singular pleasure of going to see the original 1979 The Muppets movie, in theaters at a local not-for-profit theater called The Review. Yes, at Review Cinema. (laughs) It's a great theater. If you are anywhere near Toronto, I recommend checking it out. They have great programming there. Yes. Including they showed The Muppets, and that was great. Yes, it was a great opportunity to watch a classic film on the big screen, and there was so many children there, and it was very great. Yeah, this is actually the first time I've gotten to see a Muppets movie in theaters. Same! So it was really cool to get to see the first one as the first experience of seeing the Muppets on the big screen. Yeah, I just didn't get out to the like more recent two, and like before that was Muppets in Space, and I was too young, and there was just this big gap, really. There just wasn't a lot of like major releases. Anyways, it was very nice seeing in theaters, and this is a point I want to make. There was a lot of kids in the audience, which was great, and obviously, because it's a kid's movie, but the kids were very attentive the whole time, and the movie doesn't like, it's not like constant screaming kids movie stuff like you think nowadays like it's not super super energetic the movie takes its time and had some slow moments and kids didn't lose their attention which is going to be my opportunity to get on my soapbox of kids are smarter than you think they are treat them better in your filmmaking you idiots oh yeah i mean it also reminds me of that second captain marvel screening we went to where (laughs) there were way more kids there than the first time we went and there was this one little girl who was very excitedly making like comments about the movie the whole time through and adorable uh, so good it was so good so uh this was the original the muppet movie the very first one do we want to start with some basic facts what do we want to do here well, let's just set the scene so 1979 this was made a uh, mid-season break in between the first and second halves of season three of the muppet show so they were already pretty popular at this time and this was their first foray into a feature-length film Uh, It was directed by an outsider named Jim Frawley, and we'll get into his filmography later when we get into the background. It was written by the Muppet Show writers Jack Burns and Jerry Jewell. Okay. Jerry Jewell is a, like, very standard name in the Muppet canon. Yes, he's a longtime writer. He replaced Jack Burns as the head writer after Jack Burns left the show. Uh, Jack Burns was actually a comedian and they kind of brought in from the outside to be the head writer on the show when they started it in season one. Yeah, so this is very early Muppet. Like, not very early, but it is certainly a shift in the eras. It's a very uh, important point. Uh, music by Paul Williams, right? Or at least some of it? Uh, yes, the lyrics were by Paul Williams and the uh, music and arrangement was by Kenneth Asher. Paul Williams is great. Not as familiar with this Kenneth fellow, but the music is all great this movie so he's a very good good music man yeah so uh do you want to start with the summary or general opinions what do you want to do one of the like minor points at the very beginning of here i don't know why i just didn't know this movie was produced by universal i guess i just completely forgotten about that it really threw me for a loop when the universal logo popped up yeah that was weird also weird because the studio in the movie that they're talking about is clearly a riff on universal yeah it's, it's worldwide studios worldwide studios which is clearly a joke do you have a list of the cameos 
Because, like, the movie opens with a cameo, and I don't know who it is, but I am 100% sure that the guard that they meet at the beginning is a cameo. You just give me one second to So, find for those that. uninitiated, the very first moments of this movie after the, like, logos is the movie starts in a meta, like framing device where the Muppets are going to a screening of the Muppet movie because they've just finished making the Muppet movie and this is like a private screening. So they're going to this screening in Worldwide Studios, which is like a movie studio in the Muppet universe, I guess. Not not coming uh, up with anything? Um, they're not on the list. Oh, well, uh, the guard at the... I thought it was, but I could have just been like reaching. As you can tell from the very start of this movie, it is very meta. <laughs> Yep. They start on the postmodern foot. Yeah, this movie very much is uh, as much a movie about the Muppets as a phenomenon as it is about the actual events of the movie. It's very metatextual in that way. A lot of fourth wall breaks, a lot of like, I mean, it doesn't cut back very often to this framing device, but it is always there. And it gets very clear by the end how like meta they're willing to go. I really like that. It's one of the things that is my sense of humor is that like fourth wall breaking metatextual humor that the Muppets do. And it's a very like strong divergence from the film we watched last week, which was uh, the Muppets Take Manhattan, which has none of that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how they really start on that. The first movie they ever do is that. And I guess that's just the like thing that they came off with the show, right? Because the show is a lot like that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of humor that's very easy to do poorly. Yeah. And they don't do it badly. When you're lampshading something like that, it's easy to just do stupid things and then use the meta commentary as an excuse for doing stupid things. But the Muppets has always been a lot more intelligent than that with how they implement that humor. And a lot of that just comes from the fact that they have really talented comedians and writers working for them. And a small part of that is the fact that you're already somewhat disconnected inherently because they're, every, puppets. they're puppets, right? Yeah. The the reason that it's so easy to go, well, one of the reasons it's so easy to go into fourth wall breaks and meta humor with the Muppets is because, like, the world is already inherently disconnecting. Like, they're not trying 100% to sell you on anything that's going on. It's kind of Brechtian, honestly. Yeah, it is a little bit. A little bit Brechtian. The Muppets, kind of Brechtian. Anyways, they're at this screening, and Kermit is telling his young nephew, Robin, who I don't know where he comes from. Do you know the backstory of Robin? I really really don't. I mean, because he's in this movie, I'm assuming it's from the he's Muppet in the show. show. Yeah. So maybe when we get around to watching more of the show, more of the Muppet show, we'll get into that. Maybe that should be our next set of things that we have to watch. But yes, uh, Carmen is explaining that this is a movie about how the Muppets met. Kind of, sort of, not really. Yeah. Robin asks him if this is the real story about how the Muppets first met. And he says, uh, like, more or less. Yes, sort of. Oh, and approximation. Sam the Eagle goes out of his way to ask whether or not this movie has socially redeeming value. <laughs> that is hilarious. It's clearly a reference to the like self-censorship imposed on Hollywood in like the 50s and 60s through the Hayes Code, which, you know, just is hilarious. It's also just very funny. Yeah. Any character. This is also like basically the only thing Sam says the whole movie, so yeah. I'm good with that. Uh, it's a good line. So this is where we get to the part that probably most people actually remember as the opening. Yes. Uh, for good reason. This is the scene that basically won them the Oscar by being so intensely iconic. Mm, so good. Uh, which is the helicopter shot over the swamp that then goes into a close shot of the first full body puppet that they've ever shown on screen. Wow. Which is Kermit the Frog 
he's sitting in the swamp, floating on this log, and he's playing his banjo. And it's dope. And it's a great scene. And also the song is amazing. Yes. Like the combination absolutely. of elements here, this very slow pull-in shot to the swamp, which is like a like a full actual like realistic. I think this was probably shot in an actual swamp. This doesn't look like a soundstage or anything. Oh yeah, they me. did this uh, most of this stuff on location. Yeah, this looks like on cushion. And like the rainbow connection is just a perfect song. I mean, there's a reason we named our podcast after it. It's an excellent piece of music and like Paul Williams lyrics are just incredible here. Yeah, if you were to ask any layperson like the first thing they think of when they think about the Muppets as far as music goes, they would probably tell you the Rainbow Connection. It's so good. And it really lays down the themes of the movie. It sets up Kermit's character in a way that is kind of subtle. Mm-hmm. Where if you ignore that this is what he's singing about, his decisions make a lot less sense throughout the movie, but you have to remember that this is what he was singing about when he was on his own doing nothing. Yeah, if we're talking in the parlance of modern musicals, this is Kermit's I Want song, but it's a lot more subtle than most. Yeah, he's not like literally singing, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. He's just, this is like a thing that has been haunting me my entire existence and I don't know what it is and I don't know what to do about it, but I think I'll figure it out eventually. This is great. Also, I've heard some stuff before, read some stuff before that this was incredibly difficult to shoot. Like people almost drowned. Oh yeah, we'll get into all the things they had to essentially invent in order to shoot this movie. And that is one of them. It's a lot. So stick around and we'll tell, I'll tell you guys about that later. This is also uh, probably the first moment where I was like, see, you can like be slow and kids will be like enraptured because it's really compelling. Not because there's a lot of stuff going on. It just, it takes its time. It's just doing what it's doing. So Kermit is singing his song, the rainbow connection, this uh, slow, kind of yearning song about finding connections to other people and finding the magic in the world. And it's very much a song from the perspective of an artist, it seems like. It's a lot about that like kind of like mystery of inspiration as well. Mm -hmm. It's a good song. And he gets interrupted by a man in a boat wearing fishing gear. A boatman. Who uh, rows up to the log and is asking Kermit for help because he needs directions back to the dock because he has to catch a flight to Los Angeles because he's a Hollywood agent. Yes, he goes out of his way to explain this very quickly. This is our first cameo. It's uh, iconic voice actor Dom DeLuise. Okay, I thought I recognized him, but I could not place it. And apparently his name is a reference to an actual, like, pretty well-known Hollywood agent who like works with the Muppets like in in real life. Oh, cute, cute, cute. This conversation also has the first joke that I just wrote down because I thought it was so funny. Read my lips. It's so great. <laughs> so Kermit says, I can't remember exactly what he says, but alligators, is it is it the alligators bit? Yeah. So Kermit <laughs> gives him directions to the nearest dock and then he warns him to just watch out for the alligators. And then uh, the the agent is like, alligators? And Kermit goes, read my lips, alligators. And of course he's... <laughs> He's a Muppet, so you can't read his lips. They're barely connected to the words he's saying. But the camera still does like a close-up on his mouth as he says it. And And the puppeteer is just going at it with his lip motions. Like they don't match 
the things he's saying any better than usual, but he's like really go like his mouth is doing a lot. It's very good. Um, at this point, the agent is like, you know, you've got a lot of talent, kid. Here is a newspaper ad. It's a Hollywood studio that is specifically casting frogs to be rich and famous yeah they're looking for frogs to make rich and famous and so he gets convinced by this guy to like go out to hollywood and like make people happy specifically that's what gets him is that if he goes out he could make people happy that's what he wants to do Mm -hmm. which i think is a very sweet and important distinction he doesn't really want to be rich and famous he just wants to make people happy so kermit decides that he's gonna make the journey to la so he leaves the swamp and he starts off on his bicycle going down the road towards hollywood now this effect is amazing and i'm not 100 percent sure how they do it but it looks so good that's another one we'll get into it's really cool the stuff they came up with to do some of these incredible shots but yeah this is full body wide shot of kermit actually pedaling a bicycle and moving forward like balanced on the bike you know there's no person there you can't see anything and it looks like he just has like his weird spin little legs important to note this was 1979 they used like i don't think they used any real computer effects aside from i mean well compositing isn't really a computer effect they did use compositing in a lot of this but not in some of the shots that you think they would have to yeah it is and nothing like looks blue screeny really Mm -hmm. as far as like that kind of compositing it looks like it was probably a lot of in camera and a lot of practical stuff so at this point we get introduced to uh kermit almost gets run over by a like cement mixer (laughs) yes he he leaps out of the way just in time his bicycle gets crushed and he is he just barely gets out of the way of this steamroller because they're paving a section of the road and uh it's you don't see him jump out of the way he ends up on top of the thing and he says luckily frogs can hop yeah and uh he is witnessed in this amazing feat by max who works for the villain of the film this really sleazy guy who owns a what is clearly like a kfc style fast food restaurant that serves french fried frog legs yes the villain of this movie is a clear parody of colonel sanders i can't remember what his name is he's also like i don't know exactly where kermit's from but it's somewhere in the south i would probably say around louisiana i think it's meant to be louisiana yeah because i mean that is the region of the united states where frog legs are regularly consumed because it's a french cuisine he lives in a florida swamp he lives in a florida swamp oh my god kermit is floridian Mm -hmm. florida frog he's florida man (laughs) florida man all i mean if does that mean the guy who's chasing him Uh, the whole time is doc hopper doc hopper (laughs) right doc hopper is french fried frog legs so max works for this guy and basically sets off the villain plot for the whole movie which is doc hopper really wants kermit to stand for his french fried frog legs he really wants him to be the mascot because he is a frog who can sing and dance and jump and like talk and it's unclear if all of the frogs that he's murdering are also capable of these things or not but kermit is really unsettled by this the movie surprisingly doesn't shy away from how like actually horrifying the fact that the villain sells frog legs is yeah kermit is viscerally upset and like so are most of the other characters like it is he is uncomfortable a lot of this movie because this is just a thing that keeps getting brought up over and over again so i think he runs into these guys and he 
turns them down once. Well, at this point, Max goes back to Doc Hopper to like tell him about the frog. Kermit goes on his way. Uh, he makes his way as far as this bar called the El Slizo. Yes, the El Slizo. The El Slizo owner is also, I'm pretty sure, cameo, but I could be wrong. He gets, I don't know if it's a cameo or not, but it's a great joke. So as Kermit arrives to El Slizo's, a guy gets thrown out and he's like, this place is really rough, basically. And he's like, oh, well, could you talk to the owner? He's like, buddy, I am the owner. Yes, the owner is James Coburn. He's a very famous American actor. He had like a 45-year career, won an Academy Award in 1999 for his role in Affliction. Okay, so I did recognize him. Yeah. Also, it's a good joke. We also, so he goes into this bar and everyone's eating frog's legs, which is upsetting enough. And this weird woman kind of starts hitting on him and then his her girlfriend or her boyfriend gets really upset at Kermit and we get one of the running jokes set up which is, uh, that's a myth. Every time Kermit tries to explain that something is a myth, he gets misheard and people think he's saying miss. Yes. And every time he says it, he just out of the ether summons another cameo. Carol Kane, dressed in like, it's kind of like 1920s, like flapper style clothing. She just appears and she goes, yes. Yes. Which is absurd. I can't remember exactly what the myth is he's disputing. It's something about frogs. Like there's a lot of microaggressions against Kermit as a frog in this movie. There's this continuing underlying thing in the Muppets where the Muppets are kind of coded as like an other that does have to deal with a lot of crap. Yeah. So here is where Kermit uh, first meets Fozzie Bear who is performing on stage as a comedian because the dancing girls that normally perform at the El Slizo are not available that night. So he has to go on instead. And it doesn't go over well because Fozzie's performances never go over well. Apparently this is a regular thing that he comes out to perform some nights and just gets completely destroyed by the audience. And they start throwing stuff at him and Kermit feels for this him. guy. He so he like like jumps up on stage and he like asks the guy playing the piano cameo Paul Williams. Yes. He asks the piano player to play something uh, something energetic, something jumpy, and they he, he starts trying to get Fozzie to dance with him. This doesn't really go over any better. No, they still get stuff thrown at them and people booing them. But at this point, Max and Doc Hopper are spying on Kermit through the window, and it's like, oh my gosh, he can also dance and sing. This is a Duck- gold mine of frog. Doc Hopper is very <laughs> impressed with Max finding this frog and becomes determined to convince him to be the spokesperson for Doc Hopper's French fried frog legs. Oh, also another really good effect here with the dancing for both uh, Fozzie and Kermit. They both look very good. I mean, the dance isn't well choreographed, but, you know, the fact that they're dancing at all is impressive enough. Oh, uh, I don't remember exactly how this happens, but uh, someone gets thrown into a fan. Yeah, um, eventually, sometime after, like, as the dancing starts, uh, they, (laughs) some how a like fight gets started in the bar and everybody goes crazy and starts hitting each other somebody gets thrown into a fan eventually Fozzie gets tossed behind the bar um i think because he says something that someone finds offensive so he gets like punched across the bar uh, yeah. and he pops up from behind the bar wearing the uh, bartender's clothes and a fake beard and he goes hey everybody drinks on the house <laughs> and everybody looks at each other and then just like 
runs out of the bar very excitedly. <laughs> and they're cuts, all on the roof. Cuts to them all on the roof. And one of the like big biker guys is like holding an empty mug upside down and looking at it. And it's like, there's no there's no drinks on the house. <laughs> and it cuts back inside and Fozzie is very pleased with himself. And he says it works every time. Also, uh, there's a line in here about uh, how he does his own stunts, which is a very the, one of the early meta jokes uh, once they're actually in the film, which is very funny. Uh, so Fozzie thanks Kermit for helping defuse the situation. And Kermit uh, asks him to join him on his journey to LA because he thinks that Fozzie has talent and he wants to, you know, make new friends. And also, if they need frogs, they clearly will need bears. Yes. Yeah, fortunately, Fozzie has his own car. Well, so he has his uncle's car. His uncle's car. A Studebaker. Because his uncle left it to him when he went to hibernate. Yeah, he's just taking a big nap. So Fozzie initially says no, and Kermit's like, ah, all right. And Kermit goes to leave, and then Fozzie, who clearly wants to be insisted to come along, immediately says yes and yeah. offers his Studebaker. He also uh, does this when Kermit asks to do a double act later, and he's like, ah, you convinced me. Fuzzy is like that guy who really wants you to be nice to him, but will not like actually wait for it. He's not that self-determined. Uh, at this point, we get the actual interaction between Doc Hopper and Kermit, and we also get the commercial for Doc Hopper's restaurant, where we get a McDonald's jab as well with the art of big frog legs which is just horrifying and Kermit finds viscerally upsetting. He also references that he wants to open up something like a million stores across America. Yeah. Uh, yeah so he tr the Doc Hopper has been following them. Max is driving him in this limo uh, and they eventually flag down the Studebaker and they talk to Kermit and offer him this job as the spokesperson. They show him the commercial and it's got Doc Hopper is just wearing a very ugly frog suit and he is acting just terribly. Yes, this guy is really killing this performance of being this like psychotic frog fast food man. He doesn't seem to have any idea why Kermit is so like viscerally horrified at being offered this job. Like he's so deeply offended and Doc Hopper has no idea. And also he is offered $500 a year. Yes. Which is like, I don't know my 1970s money, but that's not good even then. So Kermit obviously says no. Uh, Fozzie is very impressed with the number of $500 a year and uh, like on the sly asks if he would accept a bear in a frog suit. And Kermit basically is like, come on, Fozzie, this is not, <laughs> no. They manage to get around the like them blocking them off and they go into the second musical number. Which is, again, one of the best musical numbers. Every uh, time I watch this movie, this is the one that is stuck in my head from like weeks it's, afterwards. It's so good. This is another really iconic one that people would probably recognize if you asked them about uh, Muppets music. It's moving right along. Moving right along. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this is basically like a travel montage musical number with a bunch of like really dumb gags that are great it's so they start in florida and they end up going like just all over the place getting lost on trying to find their way to la including one of the best jokes in the entire movie for us anyway personally <laughs> because uh they get lost and th this the, the shot is great they're driving through a forest and they go by this very confused looking mountie on a horse and <laughs> The line is like, I don't know what happened. We're in Saskatchewan. <laughs> yep. We're from Saskatchewan. 
there are like two movies that explicitly reference like three movies that we're aware of that explicitly reference the existence of the province we are from and it's so satisfying also just like flexing on the lyrics that you decided to rhyme anything with Saskatchewan because it's not a word that rhymes with thing. It's also just a great gag. So they end up like, it starts snowing or we just left Rhode Island and it's like, wait, what? And then he's just moving right along, which Mm -hmm. the the moving right along, both acts as a like, we are moving to our goal and also anytime they say something that is like absolutely not helpful for their goal, they are just moving Moving right right along. along. Uh, We get the turn left at a fork in the road joke which is a classic yes kermit tells fuzzy to turn left at the fork in the road and come to both a figurative and literal fork in the road there is a giant fork stuck in the middle of the road as it splits in two directions we also get our big bird cameo where uh as they're driving there is big bird walking down the street and he they like stop to like ask if he wants to come with them to hollywood and he's like no we're heading i'm heading to new york to get into the television industry and they're like good luck Yep. It's very cute. Yeah, great cameo. It's very cute. Oh, also, there's another running joke that I haven't mentioned up to this point, and I can't remember the first time it's introduced, but it's coming up again. What's what's the setup for the Hare Krishna joke? Oh, oh right. No, the, the first setup, we, we missed this at the very beginning, when, when um, the agent in the boat tells Kermit that he's lost and he needs directions. Kermit's initial response is to ask him if he's tried Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yes. So any anytime there's like a lost or looking for directions thing, the response is, have you tried Hare Krishna? This happens in the bar, I think, as well. Yeah. The, the One of the best uses of this is the next part that we're going to get to. Yes, is exactly. As they're on their journey, it's past the music, moving right along musical number. Uh, they end up pulling into a church to stop for the night. Yes. It looks like an abandoned church, and there's a sign out front that says... Oh, they've also been followed by Doc Hopper at this point. They had another confrontation with him, and he was basically like... uh... It's just like, Kermit has standards. Stop doing this. They stop him by a billboard for Doc Hopper's French fried frog legs, and he's still trying to, like, like very proudly showing Kermit this uh, stuff that he's, like, built and trying to convince him to, to be the spokesperson. At and Kermit po- is just absolutely having none of it. Yes. Uh, also, we get the myth joke again, and Max starts, like, showing that he's kind of uncomfortable with this. Yes, Kermit makes a reference to um, that when he looks at the billboard, all he sees is the thousands of frogs on tiny crutches. And Max initially looks confused and then looks kind of like hurt and looks at Doc Hopper. He's like, crutches? Yeah, and he's like concerned at this point. So that happens. Then they end up at this like, they turn onto this very small side road, which I don't know why they would end up on, but because they're bad at directions is basically the only reason. And they end up at this very nice looking little church and there's a sign out that says the front that says lost try harry krishna yes i get it's the 70s so this harry krishna joke is probably more like relevant at the time but it's just so absurdist now that i can't help but love it uh, so they fall into this church they go inside and there's a, a band playing on the stage at the front of the uh of, of the church and it's the electric mayhem yes yeah, so they introduce every member introduces themselves uh dr tooth and the electric mayhem have uh floyd pepper we got janice uh animal on drums yes animal 
eating drums. No, wait, no, beating drums. Uh, Zoot, Zoot on the saxophone who forgets his own name because I, I think the joke is that Zoot is just always really high. They're all really high, like yeah. all the time. Um, this is also one of the moments where it's very clear that Floyd and Janice are... <laughs> Um, okay. They, they like talk to each other like babe and stuff. It's cute, actually. Yeah. But um, and also Scooter is the road manager, which I don't think I knew because he's <laughs> he's got the van. Yeah, Scooter is their is their manager because he's got the van. Uh, they also talk about how they're intending to fix up this church and turn it into a coffee house with live music, which sounds like a nice little location, honestly. Yeah. Uh, um, so they ask Kermit and Fozzie what their story is, and because they don't want to bore the audience as they put it they just give electric mayhem a copy of the script for the muppet movie so they can read it for themselves and then they like pass out for a while while the electric mayhem reads the script there's a fade out as uh dr teeth reads from the screenplay and it fades back in once they like have caught up to the current scene and kermit and fozzy have fallen asleep outside the church so to help them because they are uh, sympathetic with their this meta-ness is a very good joke by the way yeah screenplay joke and it's it comes back which is even better oh it's amazing it comes back in a big way later towards the end uh but they they are sympathetic with their plight in being chased by Doc Hoppers, they decide to help them by uh, painting the Studebaker so that they won't be recognized on the road. Yes, and this cuts into the next musical number, which is also a classic, uh, the Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem number, Can You Picture That?, which is probably the least like lyrically important so far but it is a bunch of pretty great like nonsense gibberish like joke lyrics Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just like a good solid little doctor like electric doctor teeth and the electric mayhem like rock number it's very good and they're painting this car just like the craziest drug colors it's like ludicrously like rainbow colored with bubbles and like lines and all these different colors everywhere and it's very 60s and it's great it's so beautiful kermit doesn't appreciate it fozzy does so by the time kermit and fozzy wake up the car is finished the electric mayhem is wishing them well and they send them on their way and as soon as they like pull out and get back onto the highway (laughs) doc hopper catches up to them and they are hidden for all of uh like a couple seconds before they get recognized by by being uh, a bear and a frog in a Studebaker. Yeah, they're looking for a bear and a frog in a brown Studebaker, and Max is like, well, all I see is a bear and a frog in a rainbow Studebaker. And then Doc Hopper goes, follow that car. Yeah, they hide themselves in front of a like very psychedelic soda pop uh, billboard. billboard. Yeah, <laughs> it blends right into the board, it's... and Doc Hopper and Max go straight by them down the highway. It's absolutely beautiful. So that's how they escape that time, and then... This is the next Muppet we actually get introduced to in the next actual member of the party that they collect. <laughs> they are driving away and they get into a car accident with Plummer and his vehicle. And it's Gonzo and Camilla. Yes, Gonzo and Camilla. They are driving towards each other on the highway and then they like all of them close their eyes as they're about to collide and then Kermit and Fozzie open their eyes and they don't see Gonzo or his truck and they're like, oh, I guess we missed. <laughs> and then they look up and Gonzo 
Alfonso is hanging down through the uh, skylight yep. into their car. He's like, you call that a miss? And then it cuts to a wide shot and Gonzo's truck has flipped up and is like sitting directly across the ceiling of the Studebaker. It's gr- it's a great moment. So yes, this is just hilarious. Uh, and Gonzo is also like a freak who has a dream. So he kind of like joins in. Um, and so they get to a car dealership where they're gonna like trade in partially so that they don't keep getting chased for having a Studebaker and partially because at this point they need more room because they've collected at least two more people at this point. Yes, they've collected uh, Gonzo and his chicken wife. Camilla. Camilla, his chicken wife. They're in a loving relationship. Also, like, Gonzo is apparently just a fabulous plumber, which is just, I guess, a consistent character trait for him. So they pull into a used car lot to try and get a new vehicle. Uh, they're going to trade in both of their cars for a new one. And the uh, salesman seems to think that he can really pull one over on them. Yes, he offers them like a $12 trade in uh this is another cameo uh where it's uh milton burl plays the owner of the used car lot he's an uh, american comedian and actor yes the benefit of these cameos is that while it's obvious that you're supposed to kind of know who these people are they're all still also just doing really good jobs of their performances so like even if you don't know it's just funny yeah so, so he is showing them all these different cars. He shows them a Beetle first, and he's like, you know, this is a solid American car, and he hits the front fender, and it just falls off in his hand, and he's like, uh, removable fenders. Or for, like, uh, small garages, I think yeah, is the actual I think line. that's what he says, yeah, for small garages. Anyways, this is another uh, good joke where he promises whatever is on the sticker is the price, and he, he offers a $12 trade-in value, and... He calls for Jack to come and help move the Beetle to somewhere else in the lot because you know it's broken and this big furry guy runs out to come and help out and it's Sweetums and uh, one of the Muppets asks uh, if his name is Jack and he's like Jack not name Jack job it's very funny Sweetums is very adorable he's treated very badly by this used car salesman yeah he's treated very badly by this movie (laughs) yeah so Um, he does his like car move thing and then they're showing another car trying to get Kermit and the gang to buy another car and Sweetums uh, knocks a fly out of the air onto a sticker on a like like a larger like car. It's, it's like a big station wagon. It's, it's a big panel wagon and he slaps it onto the sign that has the price on it and it creates a period right after the 12 in like 1200 something. No, it's like 1150 or something. Something like that. Or it's 1195 because they yeah, end yeah. up owing them a nickel. Yeah it's 1195. He hits the fly. It creates a period right after the 11. So it's $11.95 on the sticker now. And it's right after he says, uh, you pay whatever's on the sticker price, guaranteed. So Kermit goes, we'll take that car for $11.95, please. And uh, he goes in to get him the nickel because, you know what? he The car salesman is at least true to his word. Yep. Uh, also, I just get the sense that he just kind of wants these people off his lot. Uh, they mentioned to Sweetums that they're going to LA, and then he runs off very excitedly, and they're like, huh, I guess he just isn't interested, and they drive off, and Sweetums runs out with his suitcase. He's like, I'm ready, guys. I'm going to go to Los Angeles. So sad. And then they're driving away, and he starts chasing after them on foot, and it's very sad. It's a very sad joke. I always feel very bad for him in this moment. 
moment. Hashtag justice for Sweetums. <laughs> justice for Sweetum. Uh, I love him. It's just very good. Uh, also, this is like the least direct trip to LA. Not just because they keep getting lost, but they also just keep stopping. Because the next thing they do is they stop at a county fair for no apparent reason. They're just taking a break, I guess. But maybe it's fate because this is where Kermit meet Miss Piggy. They stop at this county fair and one of the attractions that's going on is a beauty contest where they have just started to announce the runner-ups and the winner is going to be next. Oh, also Gonzo checks out some chickens and Camilla gets jealous. <laughs> yeah, that's a good joke. Which is a they, good they walk by this pen full of chickens and Gonzo is like checking them out. Uh, it's such a, a weird running joke in the whole Muppet franchise, but I am very fond of it. Yeah, so they get to the stage. Uh, they've announced the two runner-ups and and they're about to announce the winner of the beauty pageant and they introduce Miss Piggy who is the winner and i appreciate that this movie and like the like in general the muppets don't tend to make the fact that miss piggy is a pig like the butt of a joke in the sense that like insulting her like appearance or her weight or anything she's just the winner of the beauty pageant and the joke is that like it's a puppet and the puppet is like a pig and that's funny on its face yeah there is like a little offhand also for some reason the guy judging the beauty pageant has a really creepy like ventriloquist dummy and it, it's just a thing that's edgar bergen that's still messed up i don't like ventriloquist dummies, especially not when you have the superior version of puppets right there. You know, that's another cameo. Edgar Bergen is like a popular uh, entertainer ventriloquist from also, the, from the era. In a universe with talking like frogs and bears and pigs that are puppets, is the ventriloquist dummy still a ventriloquist dummy or is it just a very small wooden man? Kermit is pretty like starstruck by Miss Piggy and Miss Piggy is like straight up having an entire like dream sequence musical number because I mean, it- she's so <laughs> taken by this frog. Initially, I think it's more on Miss Piggy's side. Like, Kermit seems completely just, like, well, unaware no, of what's going on no, until a bit later. No, he looks at her pretty amazed at the very first, when she first steps out. Yeah, okay. In, in my opinion, he seems pretty taken with her, but not nearly as much as she is by him. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the joke, is that she is, like, immediately, intensely... She sings an uh, entire love song immediately about this man. Never before, which is maybe one of the weaker songs, but I think that's just because it's more of a joke yeah she steps out and gets crowned as the winner of the beauty pageant and then like immediately locks eyes with kermit across the crowd and there's this transition into a fantasy sequence where i think it's mostly like a montage of references to classic romantic movies is they where... swimming at a yeah. like, lovely pond and they're like taking romantic like rides and they're, they like, get married frolicking through a field yeah it's... It, it culminates with yeah this wedding sequence and she's singing to him the whole time about how she's Never before has she met anyone so like beautiful and amazing. And she's never going to love again. And uh It crashes back to reality where she has like somehow in the intervening time made her way all the way across the crowd and is like standing in front of Kermit staring at him intensely. Yes, it's kind of awkward. But he's like he seems actually kinda of, like reciprocal. Now he wants to like hang out with this pig lady. Fozzie makes a comment about going to get ice cream and Kermit invites Miss Piggy to come along they mentioned that they're on their way to la and then he's like 
hey, you want to come? Like, And then Fozzie's like, we're going to go get ice cream. Do you want to? And Kermit's like, do you want to come along? And she's like, very excited. And she runs off, uh, which seems to be a thing that happens to Kermit a lot in this movie. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, Gonzo is going to get balloons for his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So he's going to get a, a single balloon for his girlfriend. And the balloon guy is Richard Pryor. Very good cameo. He does a good job selling balloons. Yeah. Great comedian. Uh, yeah. He sells balloons. He, he convinces. Uh, so Gonzo asks Camilla what balloon she wants. And Richard Pryor like leans over and kind of quietly starts talking to Gonzo about how he should get her two balloons because the ladies love balloons and starts convincing him to buy more balloons because it will impress uh, his girlfriend. Yeah, like a chicken like that deserves as many balloons as she could get, basically. And Gonzo is totally on board and asks for the whole lot of balloons. (laughs) So he grabs them and immediately gets swept into the air because he is a puppet and these are many many helium balloons yes uh Fozzie goes to the ice cream vendor who is another cameo played by Bob Hope and he gets a honey ice cream for himself and dragonfly ripple for Kermit yes don't mix those up and then Miss Piggy comes back completely packed to go get all her suitcases she's very excited and Kermit is put in the awkward position of trying to explain that when he invited her to come along it was to get ice cream not to go to LA with them but uh, at this point Gonzo is flying away and they all just have to get into the car and solve this problem yes so they all rush to the car and they get in and start following the flying Gonzo who is floating off down the highway they're uh, also in being their car. simultaneously chased by the villains and Gonzo is actually really enjoying himself he's very into this how do they end up resolving this Gonzo ends up basically just dropping into the car uh, oh yes they end up simultaneously Simultaneously, trying to chase Gonzo and trying to escape the villains, Gonzo flies by a large billboard for um, some kind of pie restaurant uh, and knocks the... Uh, so the, the billboard has an old lady, like a grandma-looking lady, holding up a pie, and he like hits the sign and it causes the arm to fling forward and launches the pie at Doc Hopper's car, and it splatters all over that and causes them to like go off the road. And it seems like it's an actual pie based on Max's reaction to eating it, which is... <laughs> yes. Max like, reaches out and like scoops a bunch of cream filling off the side view mirror and starts eating it. How he gets down is Doc Hopper pulls out a gun because he's oh, trying right. to shoot out their tires. And then when the pie hits them, he like falls back and pulls the trigger and shoots the balloons. And then Gonzo just like slowly drifts down and falls into the car. Yes, he's okay. Everything's fine. They keep going. They end up at this hotel where they're going to stay for the night. And Kermit- uh, Miss Piggy is along with them, by the way. Yeah, she, Miss she just came on the, in the car with them and didn't listen to any arguments. And Kermit basically invites her on a date, or Miss Piggy she, basically invites him on a date, and he's like, yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah, she kind of invites himself on a date with Kermit, or invites herself on a date with Kermit, and Kermit decides like you know what sure yeah that seems nice they go to this like hotel restaurant which looks pretty nice actually and they have the most passive aggressive waiter ever yes steve martin they have somehow ended up somewhere in idaho and they're staying at this hotel um yes they go for dinner um steve martin plays the waiter it is it might be the well 
I was gonna say it might be the best cameo, but there's another cameo coming up in the next scene that may actually be even better. It's pretty dang great though, because passive yeah. aggressive waiter Steve Martin, he's just so angry. Just every single line he delivers is just dripping in sarcasm. He just hates everybody so much. <laughs> so good. So they're having this kind of romantic date. Yeah, Kermit. Um, they're like treating this place like a lot fancier an institution than it actually probably is, and mm-hmm. Steve Martin is not really having it. And they have like 10 cent wine that's been to Idaho, which is great. Kermit has taken the liberty of ordering them a bottle of wine and he asks Steve Martin to pour it for them. So he like very sarcastically like peels the foil off the bottle and then opens the bottle cap because it doesn't even have a cork in it. And then he's like holds it out to Kermit and Kermit looks confused and he's smell the bottle cap, sir. Yeah. And also they make Steve Martin taste it and he like almost vomits. Yeah. He spits it out and like looks away clearly just tastes terrible and then he turns back and puts on this ridiculous fake smile and goes excellent choice so yes uh at this point the date's going really well actually they seem to be really connecting they're having a really great time miss piggy gets a phone call from her agent and she like says she'll be right back yeah and then she never comes back kermit waits most of the night and drinks the rest of the bottle of wine by himself and he gets you know seems pretty heartbroken genuinely sad he like really liked her and yeah. this isn't going the way he thought and so he goes into the bar and Ralph is playing yes he Ralph. goes into the bar to commiserate with the piano player Ralph Ralph one of my favorites this is a great scene because it's very much riffing on the idea of the broken hearted man drinking alone and being like comforted by the by the like you know jazz piano player at the at the bar it's very good they just have this whole conversation about women and how like you know can't live with them but you can't live without them and Ralph plays another fantastic musical number hope that something better comes along which is more of a like jokey like fun little thing than like a but it's a nice little duet between Kermit and Ralph yeah Ralph is amazing in this movie yes Ralph is always amazing but he's amazing in this movie I mean it is a little bit unfortunate that this is kind of all he gets to do in this movie like he He takes along with them from that point but like this is this is his biggest scene and it's a good scene but you know Uh, also we never actually get the moment where he invites Ralph he's just in the car next time they're there yeah because they get interrupted Uh, by another phone call. So Kermit goes off to uh, take the phone call and it's Doc Hopper. Doc Hopper and they're holding Miss Piggy captive. Yes. So she's been kidnapped. They tell him to uh, go outside the back door of the hotel in the next like few minutes or whatever or or then you know he'll never see Miss Piggy again. Uh, So he goes out the back door and immediately gets jumped by a bunch of dudes who drag him into a car and they end up in this old barn and he's tied up with Miss Piggy to this uh, pillar in the middle of the barn and there's all these thugs around and Duck Hopper comes out and he tells him that he's if Kermit won't do what he wants willingly he's got a plan B that he's going to implement. And now we get, this might be the best cameo in the movie. Certainly the most cameo in the movie. Yes. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks plays the master. a crazy German scientist who has invented a machine that will basically brainwash frogs into doing whatever someone wants. Specifically frogs. It is a specifically frog brainwashing machine. I mean, it does seem to work on him 
like on Mel Brooks yes, at the end of the scene. It's designed specifically for frogs. The size of it, it's clearly designed specifically for frogs. Yes, it's a very particular device. Uh, and Mel Brooks is just really extra throughout this entire scene. Oh, he's, he's just chewing up the scene. It's so good. He's so funny. He's so funny. It's a lot. Uh, Miss Piggy is like not really worried because she's so certain that Kermit's going to get them out of this. He doesn't really do anything that gets them out of it. He gets stretched to the machine. They're going to pull down the uh, mind-washing yamaka, which is yeah. a very Mel Brooksy joke. So instead, because Kermit can't come up with anything to help them, Miss Piggy just busts out of the ropes on her own and beats the crap out of all the guys. Because Miss Piggy is awesome and she loves beating the shit out of people. Uh, Doc Hopper has already left at this point. He's going to come back later and collect Kermit he's, after he's brainwashed. He's doing the Bond villain thing. So Miss Piggy beats up all the thugs and ends up kicking Mel Brooks into the machine where he accidentally pulls the lever down and brainwashes himself and he uh, starts acting like a frog. Yes. Miss Piggy basically saves their butts and Uh, they kind of have a semi-romantic moment afterwards and then she gets an actual call from her actual agent. Who has an offer for a commercial and the phone call doesn't take long and she decides that she wants to take it and then she just looks at Kermit and goes, see you later, and then runs off. Yep, bye, basically. Unclear where this commercial is or when or anything. She just kind of like leaves. And then the film breaks down and we get back into the framing device. Very meta joke right there that, I mean, probably doesn't play for a lot of people anymore but since we were in a theater actually played a lot better than usual i am like so happy that i had the actual experience in a real theater of that happening yes. when me and a friend of mine went to see snow white and the huntsman of all things at the local theater in melfort which only has two cinemas and for some reason still uses real film <laughs> Um, but yeah, it broke down and we got to see one of the frames completely burn out and it was great. And that was worth going to see that movie for. Yes, I've never actually had that happen, but I mean, I'm glad we were in a theater to pretend that it happened. Yeah. So we're back into the framing device. The reason that the film is broken is because they're letting the Swedish chef run the projector and he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, they ask what's going on and it cuts to the Swedish chef and he's just like draped in film and trying to figure out where the film broke and it's very good. And then it goes back into the movie pretty quickly. There's a couple little comments about it. Yeah, eventually he gets it figured out. They start the movie back up and we're next morning... All the Muppets are in the car, and Rolf is with them now. Uh, Miss Piggy is gone because she went off to do her commercial. Kermit is actually clearly pretty sad about this. Yeah, he's very upset. You know, he felt something, and she just ran off. But fortunately, as they're going down the highway, they run into Miss Piggy, who is hitchhiking with all of her luggage. And she's super jazzed to get back in there with Kermit, and he's kind of just like, I don't trust you anymore. Yeah, he's clearly pretty hurt about what happened and that she just ran off and she's trying hard to get him to forgive her. And it doesn't take very long before their car breaks down. Yep. So at this point, we've got a handful of Muppets like stuck in the desert and they're like, eventually someone will come. It's fine. We'll get there. But they're running out of time. They have to get there tomorrow because that's when the the audition is. Uh, Just prior to this, there's a cutaway to Doc Hopper who... In his frustration with the failure with the mind washing machine, he is uh, has hired a frog hitman. This guy is like a professional frog assassin. He's uh, in like the stupidest outfit. It's fabulous. 
Yeah, so this guy is like dressed in all black with like goggles and he's carrying it looks like a harpoon gun but has like little like three-tined forks. It's a <laughs> wild getup. He's basically hired to hunt down Kermit and bring him in so that he can be forced to be the spokesperson for Doc Hopper. Yeah, uh, at this point it seems like Doc Hopper is also just okay with actually murdering him and using him as like a puppet. It's Yeah. Pretty crazy. This is there to raise the stakes as we go into the towards the end of the movie. So the Muppets are they've broken down. They're in the middle of the desert. They're camping. Now, this is where we get another musical number with Gonzo. Yes, this song is seriously underappreciated in my book. I don't hear anybody talk about it, but it's like kind of a like emotional core to this film. It's like a really strong thematic point for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, go back there someday, which is very much about like you have experienced something incredible once and you really want to get back to it. And it's about, again, it's another one of those kind of metaphorical songs about like art mm-hmm. that is very, very very good and it's like a softer sweeter kind of like song that they're singing around the campfire so in the context of the film gonzo has like in in flying in these with these balloons he has had an experience where he feels like he got close to something that is important to him by like flying through the air and he's looking up into the stars and he feels like he's been there before he's singing about how someday he's gonna go back there and it's very good it's a very good song it's just this quiet moment in the movie where gonzo gets to reflect on what he's been experiencing on this adventure and it's really good it's such a sweet and it starts with harmonica and it's just a sweet little i don't know i'm very fond of this number kermit's very sad he doesn't think they're gonna get there and he doesn't really get why everybody's kind of like been putting their faith in him which is a problem kermit comes back to in a lot of movies is people seem to trust him implicitly and he doesn't he didn't really mean for that to happen somebody makes a comment about how they're not going to make it and kind of implies that it's Kermit's fault because he's the one who's been, you know, recruiting everybody and inspiring them to come along. And Kermit says, kind of upset that he he didn't promise anybody anything. And he walks off into the desert by himself and he's kind of muttering to himself, trying to convince himself that he didn't promise anybody that they would get rich and famous and it's not his fault that they got stuck out here in the desert. And he has this kind of gullible moment where he sees a vision of himself and they have this conversation where he realizes that he may not have promised anybody else that they were going to make it to Hollywood, but he did promise himself and this is actually a dream that he wants to realize and... He realizes that everyone else also has dreams that they're trying to pursue and he like gets re-inspired. This is also like a weirdly like psychological meta thing for a kid's movie to do where he just like wanders into the desert and has an actual conversation with himself. Oh yeah. Like it... another, like there's another Kermit puppet and they're just straight up talking to each other. It's, it's the I really of, dig it. It's the kind of thing that you really rarely see in children's movies, but occasionally something like it comes up. Like I'm reminded of the scene in Kung Fu Panda 2 where there's the like weird surreal dream sequence where Poe remembers his childhood and yeah, he like which... has visions of his parents and it's all 2D animated. It's really cool. Yeah, I like how serious the characters are allowed to be in this movie on occasion. Like, yeah. it's a funny movie. Every joke in this, for me, at least lands, at least all the ones that I recognized as jokes. And it's like 
it's very funny and it's goofy and it's lighthearted, but also like the characters are allowed to have genuine moments of like pathos and I don't know. It's a thing that the Muppets do really well and yeah. it's great that it's like from the get go, from the very first like movie that they do, they've got this very good balancing act of like Yeah, the whole thing is like meta and silly and you don't take it too seriously but like it's still a good story and there's still good characters and you still want these people to be happy uh and that's the other thing is that kermit remembers that the reason he's doing this in the first place is to make people happy and like he might be able to make these people that he's brought along be happy and that's good for him yeah so they all go to sleep and the next morning fortunately the electric mayhem show up in their tour bus yeah they're all just there chilling and playing music all of a sudden because they still have their copy of the script for the Muppet movie, and they read ahead and figured out that they would be in trouble, so they drove up to the desert to find Kermit and friends to give them a ride to L.A., and that is the payoff for that joke, and it's amazing. Yes, it is a double screenplay joke, meta whammy. And this is what I'm talking about with the, like, yeah, you cared that they're stuck, and this is the solution. It's dumb. Just get over it. It's this great moment of, like, it's kind of deus ex machina, but also it was planted earlier in the movie and like yeah it's completely crazy and meta and doesn't really make any sense but you know what who cares it's the Muppets let's keep going yeah moving right along uh as such they all get in the van and they're gonna get pulled over by a cop but it's actually Max uh, at this point, there is a joke where one of the Electric Mayhem is spelling out that they're getting chased by a P.I. And Miss Piggy is like, don't you dare. She doesn't stand for using her species name as a slur. Yeah, so Max, he the cop pulls his visor up and it's Max. And he's like, I've come ahead to warn you that they, he warns them that Doc Hopper has hired this guy to take out Kermit. And he's had a change of heart because he doesn't want them to get hurt and things have gone too far. And uh, they don't they aren't sure if they believe him at first, but they decide that they don't want to take any chances. So they pull ahead to this uh, ghost town. Well, Kermit says that he just kind of wants to like end this. He yeah. goes in and he's like, I want to like this. Is, we have we can't keep running forever. I, we have to face this. And he goes to the ghost town to direct to like meet with Jock Hopper and end this. So they go into this ghost town. And there's just like a horse skeleton. Yeah, that's a great joke. They drive into this ghost town and there's a full skeleton of an actual like horse. Horse. Like not a puppet, but like a real horse. And they drive in and it just like crumbles to the ground. Yes, it's a very funny like this is a ghost town yeah. joke. And uh, it's, it's like a literal like old west ghost town too, which is great. Yes. So they go into the saloon and Bunsen and Beaker are hanging out and they've got these Instagrow pills that they're Yes. They just live in this ghost town doing science experiments together. Yeah, Bunsen and Beaker are just there doing experiments. They have created the Instagrow pill, which makes things grow really big. Temporarily. They have like a four foot tall prune on the on the counter. Uh, but sadly, the effect is only temporary. Uh, and Kermit has, you know, resolved to face down Doc Hopper. So he dresses up in cowboy boots and a hat and he goes out into the town square and he waits for Doc Hopper to show up. Literally at noon. Yep. Yep. So Doc Hopper and his gang of thugs and the frog hunter all show up and get out of their cars and they are all, they're facing across the square from Kermit and we get this Old West showdown. And Doc Hopper gives him 
the ultimatum of like going with him or dying basically and then kermit is like giving the thesis statement of the movie basically which is like what's your deal man why are you even doing this don't you have anybody that you care about and dreams don't you have real dreams like me and my friends we have shared dreams and that has brought us together and i believe in us and i believe that if you have any heart at all you'll like see that we're like trying to accomplish something and you'll trying to murder us basically and all the other muppets come out and they join kermit and you know you have this back and forth comparison between you know these nameless mooks and all of these you know identifiable personalities on the one side with the muppets and also this like clear strong found family message which i love me some found family messages notably though animal is missing from this uh, gathering yes he's and also bunsen and beaker are still not there but yeah. they're not really friends yet so that's fine uh doc hopper uh, initially looks like he's gonna stand down like he seems like he's really considering what kermit has said and then he's like you know what just kill him and then at that moment there's a rumbling as animal <laughs> bursts through the ceiling of the saloon having taken the instagrove hills and he's like 40 feet tall the effect is great yes it's just like huge giant animals sticking out of the building and all the bad guys run away because you know what? That's pretty dang intimidating. Yeah. And the Muppets cheer because of their victory. And there's cut there, but presumably Animal eventually shrunk back to his regular size. And they, they drive into LA to go to Worldwide Studios. Uh, which they get to, and they get to the office where this, this audition is happening. And there's a very racist receptionist who really does not want to let this frog and his animal friends in. Yeah, this is another cameo. Uh, the, uh, the secretary, Miss Tracy is played by Cloris Leachman. Yes. Uh, she denies them entry to the to the producer's office because she doesn't want them interrupting his work. And they get around this by uh, standing in front of the fan in the office and all like scratching themselves to get their like animal hair and like, feathers and stuff in into the air because she's allergic to animals. It's questionably moral because it does seem like she might actually die, but she lets them in and that's fine. <laughs> she lets them in as she like passes out behind her desk. And so they go into the office of producer Lou Lord. And he's in his big fancy office yeah. chair. I love the design of this office, like from a from a thematic po- like perspective, because it's like it's all designed to be super intimidating. He's there's this huge high backed chair and this big mahogany desk, and the chair is turned away from them, and there's like a big shelf behind the desk with four gleaming Oscars on it. I have the note, cool office, bro. Yeah. The chair spins around and it's Orson Welles. Yes. This is a great use of your Orson Welles. He's just this like hulking presence and he's got a big cigar and a beard and he's looming over all of the all of the Muppets. And the Kermit is basically like, yeah, we're here for the auditions for the rich and famous frog thing. And Lou Lord looks down at them and he looks them over, appraises them, and then he takes a second and he presses the button on the intercom and he says, Miss Tracy, draw up a standard rich and famous contract for Mr. Kermit the Frog and company. And everybody cheers. And it's very lovely. And then the next scene is they're getting to make their first movie together and it's they're pulling in a bunch of like cardboardy versions of exactly the sets from this movie. Uh, and we get, um, make it, uh, there's a song 
song here that eventually transitions into another version of the Rainbow Connection, which is just very sweet. It's a cute little song. It's very short because it's just kind of like while they're setting up movie stuff and it cuts in and out of lyrics and like doing stuff mm-hmm. montage. Yeah, this is the finale. There's a montage of them setting everything up. All there's a bunch of different a bunch of different slapstick gags here as everybody's setting everything up. So anyway, everybody's setting everything up and they start filming and then something gets knocked over and it sets up this domino effect that all the sets get knocked over and then uh, the lights blow out and it makes an explosion and there's a big hole in the ceiling but as the dust settles they see an actual natural rainbow filtering down through the hole in the ceiling and it illuminates them and the camera pulls back and we see just every puppet from essentially across the history of the Jim Henson company gathered around as they sing a final reprise of the Rainbow Connection. And uh, Life's Like a Movie, which is how it trails out, which is like, again, another thesis statement for the movie and just so sweet. And it's like ending on this, like, you can make your own story, inspirational, like follow your dreams kind of message. And Mm -hmm. it's very genuine and sincere in that ending moment, even while like everything is silly and meta around it. It's very, very sweet. Oh, and then Sweetums breaks through the screen because he did catch up with him eventually. Final note of the movie is where framing device meta story meets the in-movie story where Sweetums literally bursts through the movie screen in the framing device and he's finally caught up with them. Which implies that if anything about the movie that we're watching is true, it's the part where they left Sweetums behind. So this movie is great. It's so good. It holds up so well, and it might be my favorite out of all the ones we've watched for this show so far. It might be like the best Muppet movie, and it's wild that they started on such a strong note, and they kept, like, there's a lot of really great Muppet movies, but this one is so, such a good place to start. Yeah, like it's... It's kind of rambling and episodic, but in a way that I think ultimately ends up benefiting the movie because we get so much of these characters and so many great comedic scenes with them. I feel like rarely do I say that the like stereotypical villain really brings this together, but it is the like note that makes it not just like random stops on a road trip. It is, and every time they go anywhere, there's this asshole who shows up who wants to eat Kermit, basically. Yeah, it turns the movie into this chase movie where any moment they could end up being in jeopardy from this villain that is constantly following them. And the stakes of it are like end up being pretty high because, you know, they're trying to either like torture Kermit into becoming the spokesperson for this business or just straight up murdering him. Yeah, it's pretty fabulous. The whole movie is pretty fabulous. And yeah, I don't, it doesn't feel too episodic to me because it's a road trip movie and that's just kind of the function. And also, yeah, it has that through line and I don't know. I just really enjoy it. It's not too fast or wacky and it's not too slow. It's it's just right. It also holds up visually really well, like in a way that most movies from the late 70s probably wouldn't if you watch them now. And I think that's just because they were really dedicated to making everything look as like physical as possible. Like they, they really went out of their way to make sure that the puppets interacted well with real life, mm-hmm. which was a big problem for them because up to this point it only really produced the television show which was you know on sets and wasn't interacting with actual like on location shooting the amount of like they went really hard for this in a way they didn't have to it is ambitious in a way that man they didn't like need to actually do this but they were gonna make a movie and they 
they made a movie and I'm very grateful for it. And it really pays off. Okay, good. Well, I figured because, you know, the Muppets are still a huge cultural icon. I figured their first movie didn't flop so bad or anything. Uh, Do you want to get into some of the fun facts behind this movie? Yes, let's. It is your research day. Right. So this movie uh, was a huge hit at the box office. Uh, Do you want to guess what the budget was in 1979 money? I have no idea. I'm not good at those things. Uh, so it was a modest $8 million, which, you know, isn't huge. I mean, it probably would end up being more than that adjusted for inflation. Even um, then, though, that's not that much. No, it's 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 uh, I guess probably big for like a kind of independent production like that. But like, I mean, they had a lot that they needed to, to deal with. Also, I mean, they were a well-known, like successful, long-running TV, TV yeah. show at this point. It's not like they were an unknown quantity. Yeah, no, for sure. Do you want to guess how much it made? More than that. All right. So in 19. 19- 1979 money they made 76 million dollars 76 million 657 thousand dollars in the worldwide box office it is the seventh highest grossing film of 1979 wow and to this day adjusted for inflation it is the second highest grossing muppet movie after the 2011 soft reboot wow that's very impressive adjusted for inflation it made nearly 300 million dollars <laughs> So it's not making like Disney blockbuster money, but like nothing did back then. It is making wild amounts of money for 1979, though. That is fabulous. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge hit. It was big critical success. And the success of this movie is really what allowed the Jim Henson Company to produce more feature films. Yeah, this is the start of the real like shine of the company, the like movies. And that's what we're like primarily talking about here is like the stuff that the Muppet movie allowed to exist. It was nominated for two Academy Awards for Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher's musical score and specifically uh, for their song, The Rainbow Connection. So it was nominated for Best Musical Score and for Best Original Song. Yes, which of course it was. It had to. In 2009, the film was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. I feel like you have to recognize some kind of Muppets thing, and if you're going to do that, you should just pick the first movie. Yeah. The Muppets are culturally significant. I think we can all agree on that here. Absolutely. There's a reason that they have become such uh, like incredibly important icons. The car that Fozzie drove is on display in the National the Studebaker National Museum of South Bend, Indiana. It is it is a bear's natural habitat, the Studebaker. So in order to prepare for the movie, Jim Henson, James Frawley, and Frank Oz ran several camera tests outside of London to determine how well the puppets would look filmed in real life locations. So before they even started on the movie, they took these puppets out into the real world and they did a bunch of camera tests with them. This was what they were all nervous about is like, how are these puppets going to look when we film them in real locations with real people with like actual... as opposed to, you know, on sets and like, you know, they have to interact with physical objects in a way that the show doesn't and even just necessarily like require as really much. different lighting requirements and stuff. There's a lot of different things that you wouldn't have accounted for in design work. The pre-production phase of this must have been crazy. Oh, absolutely. This is the only Muppet movie prior to Muppets from Space that was directed by someone who wasn't already a part of the Jim Henson company and that kind of like family of, of uh, creators. I mean, none of them had directed a film at this point. So yeah. maybe it wasn't a safe idea to have a mm-hmm. first-time director. Yeah, so they had to reach outside. Um, Jim Frawley is an interesting choice, and I'll get 
to that in a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't really happy on the set of this film, and mm. I couldn't find much about why. I kind of get the sense that maybe he was being a little bit controlled by Jim Henson and Frank Oz and some of the others. Like I think, yeah, I just so- from how I understand their their personalities, maybe he was getting kind of badgered by them. But I don't know. They're uh, very in con- Jim was very in control of his brand, mm-hmm. and Frank is still very yeah. particular human being. So I am not surprised that an outsider found them difficult to work with. Yeah, there was an interview with Austin Pendleton, who played Max in 2009. He was interviewed by the AV Club. He said that it was a very unhappy set because Jim was very unhappy directing that movie. I noticed that that was the only time the Muppet people used an outside person to direct a Muppet movie. They never did that again. After that, it was either Jim Henson or Frank Oz, and I would have liked to have been in one of those because those sets were very harmonious, but this was not. I mean, it's a first time outing. I'm not surprised that there was some strife going on and they seem to have learned their lesson, I guess, from it. And it worked out. Sometimes you just can't with that kind of a brand, with that kind of a like personal project. It worked out in the end. So I can hardly complain, I guess. Too bad for everybody, though, that it was kind of a rough shoot, I guess. Uh, yeah, so James Frawley like, is a really interesting and kind of left-field choice for this. He was an actor originally before he transitioned into directing, and he di- primarily directed uh, directs television. So I-, I have collected just a selection of his filmography here because he's actually fairly prolific. But he started out in the 60s, the late 60s, doing a, a television show called The Monkees, which is actually a, just, like, a short-lived comedy that ran that was about the band the, the, the misadventures of the band of the monkeys okay um, he directed the movie the christian licorice store in 1971 this was his like film feature film directing debut which is a drama about a tennis champion who falls in with the hollywood crowd and finds himself being corrupted by life in the fast lane called the christian licorice store yeah and it was it starred Bo bridges there's a lot going on here that i don't understand that i feel like maybe i would have understood if I was on the drugs that people were on in the 70s. And so then he did the Muppet movie in 79. And after okay, that- Okay, so he'd only directed one movie at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, That's really interesting. There's some stuff that I don't have included here. It was mostly television, but yeah. Then after that, he went back to television and he did Magnum P.I. He did a few episodes of that in the 80s. He directed some episodes of the show Mike Hammer, which is another show that is about, it's, it's based on, I think, some serials or books or something about like uh, Mike Hammer's uh fairly famous like noir detective character he directed a bunch of episodes of Cagney and Lacey Columbo Law and Order so a lot of like serialized yeah, crime like, stuff. serialized noir crime stuff which like okay for the like I just don't his career is weird it's weird he also directed the pilot of Ally McBeal in ni- 1997 I mean that show went places and a bunch of episodes of Grey's Anatomy like I, I it's just it's just a weird choice I mean I, his, his filmography makes so much more sense if you cut out the Muppet movie. Yeah, the it's, Muppets this is, is very such an outlier. I mean, he didn't have a good time with it, so it's not surprising that he didn't go back or anything. It's just like, why him? The- Whatever. Maybe he was the only one who was willing to do it. Maybe it was like, we have this guy. We promised him a movie. Can you guys work with him? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a really, it seems like a li- really weird choice to me. But I don't know how much of the directing he actually he, did, but yeah. he seems to have done a good job, so uh, like, like, I'm grateful great, for so him. Whatever. I mean, it worked out even if 
he didn't have a good time doing it. Yeah, the writers who we mentioned before, Jack Burns and Jerry Jewell. Jack Burns was uh, originally a stand-up comic. Uh, he actually got his start in comedy as the partner of George Carlin. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. I mean, like, those are kind of different sensibilities, but there's some similarities there. Yeah, so he worked with George Carlin as a comedian in the 60s. Eventually, he got hired as the head writer of The Muppet Show for season one. Jerry Jewell, he replaced Jack Burns as the head writer of The Muppet Show after Jack Burns left the show. He met Frank Oz when they were both working for the Oakland Recreational Department's Vagabond Puppet Theater as teenagers. And then later they met Jim Henson at a puppeteer gathering in California. There was these, he... like, puppet conventions where this whole thing took off, and I would yeah. have loved if there was some documentaries about that, because this sounds like such an interesting scene. Yeah, that would have been great. Um, so yeah, he was recruited directly by Jim Henson uh, out of one of these gatherings, and originally started working all the way back to Salmon Friends as, uh, as a writer. Yeah, he's one yeah. of the, like, he's very early. Is yeah, he even he's... earlier than, I mean, like, him and Frank have to be some of the very earliest. Yeah, I don't know how Besides early Jim. Frank was started working with uh, Jim Henson but yeah like they they're both like ground floor really important early uh, collaborators on the Muppets. So obviously this is like the guy who's written written the most like television stuff and the guy who like knows the Muppets in and out the best besides Jim writing mm-hmm. the first movie just makes sense. Yeah. So the music uh, we mentioned the names before but the score and arrangement was done by Kenneth Asher. Uh, he is currently 74. He's still working today. Wow. He's a jazz pianist composer and arranger. He he plays piano for the 16-piece jazz outfit Birdland Big Band. He, uh, over his career, has done arrangements for such notable artists as John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Uh, he did the arrangements for Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Ooh. Uh, him and Williams both did original music for the 1976 version of A Star is Born. Uh, Not the best version of A Star is Born, but it's got some good tunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the Barbara Streisand version. Yeah, that one drags. They did the music and lyrics for Watch Closely Now, Hellacious Acres, The Woman in the Moon, uh, Finale, which is a combination of With One More Look at You and a reprise of Watch Closely Now. And he's been a member of the American Society of Composers since 1968. All right, so prolific kind of guy. Not familiar with the name, but he's just been around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's done a lot of uh, of good Paul Williams. Who we love. Yeah, we is love 78. Still kicking, still doing work. Um, he started his career as a pop songwriter in the 1970s. He did songs for such notable works as Three Dog Night, Helen Reddy. Uh, he did work for David Bowie's Fill Your Heart. I mean, uh, Paul Williams is great. The Carpenters. Uh, he also wrote the lyrics for the song Evergreen from A Star Is Born, which I think he got nominated for an award for. Uh, he's also done act on the side. He has been in Smokey and the Bandit, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which he also did some music for, Phantom of the Paradise, which he also scored and got an Oscar nomination for. He's amazing in that movie. And most recently, and this is one that I didn't realize when I saw the movie, but realized after while I was researching this, is he plays a character in Baby Driver, The Butcher, who is a, like, federal agent who is a a gun runner on the side who sells guns to criminals 
which is I, a great for, scene and he's fantastic in it. I just didn't recognize him. Same. And it's not like he's, you can't hide Paul Williams. Paul Williams is like not an actor who slips into things unnoticed, but yeah. he's always great. And he does a great job in his little cameo in this movie. And his lyrics are great in this movie. Yeah. He is a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He was the president of the American Society of Composers uh, since 2009. Wow. And he also did music and lyrics for several songs on Daft Punk's Random Access Memories. That I did not know. We're going to have vocals. He did vocals in the song Touch and he co-wrote the music and lyrics for Beyond. We have to listen to Random Access Memories sometime. Again, I mean, I've listened to it. Daft Punk is fabulous, but like, yeah. what? His brother, Mentor Williams, was also a songwriter. So, sorry, Mentor Williams? Yeah. That's quite the That's name. That's a name. Uh, and his other brother, John J. Williams was a NASA rocket scientist who received the Distinguished Service Medal and worked on the Mercury and Apollo missions. So like this is a this is a very talented family. What what do you as a parent of these three boys? Like one of them is like a standard musician, one of them is a NASA astronaut and one of them like constantly works with Muppets. Like what is your life? How did this happen? Was, who are you? Yeah, like I mean kudos to those parents because like these... Also, they seem to be decent people like I've never heard a bad thing about Paul Williams. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he seems great. His first appearance with the Muppets was on the Muppet Show in 1976, and Ever since that first episode that he was on, he's been working close. He had been working closely with Jim Henson. Yeah, um, he-, he did work for Emmett Otter. He did work for the Muppet Movie, and he did uh, lyrics and music for the Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's like not the only guy, but he comes back pretty regularly in the Muppet in Jim Henson canon. They like him. He's great. He does great work. Yeah. If you haven't seen Phantom of the Paradise, watch Phantom of the Paradise because yeah. it's one of the best like movie musicals nobody's ever seen. He is just an immensely talented songwriter and producer this is just uh, turning into the yeah. paul williams podcast let's keep moving <laughs> all right so moving now right we along. can now we can get into some of the new uh, techniques that were created in order to make this film possible Ooh, i do want to get into that technical knowledge all right so in roughly chronological order to how they appeared in the film in the opening scene with the rainbow connection to perform kermit static on a log jim henson had a specially designed metal container built to go under the water that had an air hose connected to a rubber sleeve which came out to, so that he could breathe. He had an opening that had like an arm sleeve that came up under the log so that he could reach up and perform the puppet while he was underwater. And then a monitor installed so that he could see his performance so he could you know, you know see what he was doing. So this was, he was squeezed in there with two other operators. I don't know if they were in this container or if they were somewhere else hidden, but the, the entire thing required two assistant operators, which were Catherine Mullen and Steve Whitmire, that helped operate the puppet. And Jim Henson did the mouth movements from underwater. This scene took five days to film. Oh my god. And it is the first scene ever of a full body Muppet on screen. And it, I mean, it looks perfect, but yeah. five days in a Florida five swamp. Five days under a Florida swamp in a metal box. And nobody got malaria. It's amazing. Yeah. So like uh, Catherine and Steve need to get more credit here because like they also did this and they have mm-hmm. a lot less to gain than Jim. Yeah, like that that is dedication Bravo. to your craft right there. Uh the bicycle scene is a little bit less hardcore. They had a full body Kermit puppet attached to the bicycle. So the arms were attached to the handlebars and the legs were attached to the pedals. That is a safe 
exception. And the bike is actually connected to invisible wires that are uh, attached to a crane setup that is just above just off uh, camera. the frame. Just out of frame. And the crane is guiding the bike forward just out of shot. So essentially, you know, he's just attached to the pedals. And then as the wheels move, the pedals move and the legs move. So it looks like he's piloting the bike. Yeah, but that's still pretty wild. Yeah. Like, bikes are hard to keep up. Like It, it looks great. Like, you had to have that crane very, like, specifically balanced because bikes don't stay up on their own. It's very hard to actually keep those things balanced. Mm-hmm. So another aspect that you may or may not have thought about is uh, how they did the driving close-up. Oh, yeah. I just kind of assumed there was some blue screen or something there, I so guess. There, there are multiple shots in this movie uh, that are, like, uh, medium close-ups of Fozzie driving the car in the front seat. This was accomplished by they had two different 51 Studebaker Commander Coupes that were designed for this movie. Uh, one of them was just painted, but it wasn't modified at all. And this was used for the wide, wide shots. And it was just driven by a human driver. Because, uh, you know, the if they're not visible in the scene, it doesn't really matter. The other one was outfitted with a camera in the front grille that was fed into a monitor that was inside the trunk of the car, where a driver was operating the vehicle from the trunk of the car, so Frank Oz could be, like, under the dashboard operating Fozzie driving the car. Oh my god. That can't have been safe. This is the technique that was used in the close-ups. I mean, this is actually something that the, like, hiding professional driver who's driving from a monitor is a thing that is done a lot of in in a lot of uh, scenes that require, like, stunt driving where you need to see the actor driving in the car. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the time now that's done with more, like, remote control technology, though, isn't it? Uh, Probably nowadays, but I know that, like, this is a similar technique was used in some of the Bond movies that had like stunt driving where you needed to see Bond in the front seat of the car. I guess Um, it makes sense. I mean, I guess they didn't really have to develop this so much. It's like, how does Bond do this? I guess we'll do that for our puppets. Yeah. So other full body Muppet techniques that were used, uh, they had specially designed remote control puppets that were operated from off screen for some of these. And they also had some scenes where full body puppets were operated in front of a blue screen and then they composited them into the final frame. This is also how they accomplished the uh, dance scene in the El Slizo. It's pretty smooth. Like, you don't yeah. really see it, which is pretty impressive. I think they know to, how to keep the lighting and whatnot so that it doesn't yeah. bleed. So that scene specifically was Jim and Frank operating Fozzie and Kermit in front of a blue screen, and then they composited that over the stage. And this is a scene that I did not realize required so much intense work, but uh, the final reprise of the Rainbow Connection, where all the puppets are gathered under the rainbow, required nearly 137 puppeteers. I mean, that makes sense. There's a lot of puppets. In addition to all of the like pre-existing Muppet puppeteers who were also there. So they recruited all of these people from the Puppeteers of America, which is apparently a, an organization that existed in 1979. Here's a quote from Karen Falk, who is a Jim Henson Company archivist. There are 250 puppets in the last shot of the film, and they're all moving. How? 150 puppeteers in a six foot deep, 17 foot wide wide pit that's how <laughs> they were recruited through the los angeles guild of the puppeteers of america and almost every puppeteer west of the rockies reported for pit duty oh i don't know i like that i like these weird 
subcultures that exist where everybody's very dedicated to this thing and like I don't know it seems very sweet to me that they got 150 puppeteers in a pit the puppet pit I mean if you're a puppeteer in the 70s and you get called up by the Jim Henson company to like come and operate puppets for one of for this movie we need someone the first to... movie that yeah. they're making like you would jump at the chance to do that yeah you're like if you are anywhere near where they're filming that mm-hmm. like go for it also I don't know I don't know what kind of people become hobbyist puppeteers who join like the American League of Puppeteers but like I guess they're the kind that have enough disposable income to go to Hollywood for a puppet shoot yeah so this scene... I mean I assume they paid all of like oh yeah it's work mm-hmm. also like I like this just this concept of like a big puppet pit it's yeah. just very funny to me it's like the beacons being lit in lord of the rings i guess like you get a call it's like okay how do you think they organized this freaking shoot like okay there's like 150 new people here uh and we've got 250 puppets which means multiple people were operating a puppet with each hand yeah uh like what how that's so many puppets it is a lot of puppets in fact it's virtually every puppet created by the jim henson company at that time it includes characters from The Muppet Show, Sesame Street, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and the Land of Gorch segment from Saturday Night Live. It is like a pretty quick shot, all things considered, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't get a chance to really, like, see all of them. You're kind of, like, swept by the bigger ones. Like, you notice Big Bird pretty clearly because he's giant and yellow. I would like to, like, freeze frame, like, go through all of the puppets sometime and just, like, dig into this because, like, that's amazing. We need to do Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas next year. Yeah, we really do. I, I have never seen Emmett Otter, so I would be very excited to to get into that same here anything else on the fun fact well we haven't gone through all of the cameo corner yet we talked about quite a few of them in the context we did uh bring up a lot of them uh dom Deloise was bernie the hollywood agent uh reference to bernie brillstein who was a talent agent and producer on the muppet show talked about james coburn uh madeline khan was the uh, the Elslizo patron who hits on Kermit. Uh, she is most famous for playing Lily von Stoop in Blazing Saddles. Yeah, a couple of Mel Brooks uh, veterans in this one, eh? Yeah, there was Telly Savalas, who's American film actor and singer. Uh, he played the uh, tough guy in the El Slizo. The one that is mad that you're hitting on his girl. Yeah, I'm assuming that's who they're referring to uh, in this list. And, you know, we had Carol Kane and Paul Williams, Milton Berle as Mad Money Mooney, the car salesman. Uh, Elliot Gould is one that we didn't mention. Oh. Uh, he was there as the compare who announces Miss Piggy as the winner of the beauty pageant. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Edgar Bergen. We mentioned him yeah. as Creepy Puppets. We can move on. Uh, this was unfortunately his last film role before he passed away. Well, you could have told me that before I pissed all over him in the section where I talked about it. Jeez, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know. Uh, I'm sorry for their family's loss, and I still don't think he should have been in this movie, but whatever. I guess. Yeah, and then all the rest of them we mentioned as they came up. So Bob Hope, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, Mel Brooks, Cloris Leachman, and Orson Welles. There are quite a few in this that have like stood the test of like people recognizing time at the very least. Even if you are like pretty culturally unaware, you're going to vaguely recognize Steve Martin and Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Those two are going to hit you. Probably Bob Hope because he like hosted the Oscars like a dozen times. And probably Mel Brooks. I and mean, probably Mel Brooks, yeah. He's been pretty, he's lasted pretty well in the I mean, he's still alive also. 
Yeah. I mean, all of the people, well, Oscar, uh, or not Oscar, Orson Welles Orson isn't alive, Welles. but uh, people are aware of Orson Welles, mm-hmm. I think is safe for me to say. Yeah, so that's that's all I got, all my fun facts about the Muppets movie. All right. Do you have any like final thoughts here? Uh, I mean, I think we pretty much covered everything. This movie is just a genuine classic. It holds up amazingly well. I am very excited to show our future children this this yeah, kind of absolutely. movie this is the kind of thing where like this is going to be great i mean we talked about in the episode on the muppet tv show that first season like the disney tv show that there are uh, a lot of comedies where yeah, a lot of good comedies where they'll just throw jokes at you and you they, they hit they move so fast that you remember the good ones and you forget the bad ones in in a good comedy um in this movie they don't really do that like it's pretty measured and like paced out pretty deliberately where the jokes hit but they all land yeah and that's really impressive it's vital to how the Muppets work at this point and I think this is the blueprint for what the Muppets can be really as a cultural icon I think this is what people are like this is the like core of what they are thinking of this is some kind of like psychic image of the Muppets as a concept and it's a good one to have yeah it's got that just perfect concept combination of humor and and genuine emotion that you really uh, that you you know usually think about when you think about the Muppets that it's this combination of like genuine character and emotion and then just insane absurd humor that is absolutely hilarious when it's really on point. I also think the characters are very well established in this one, which Roger Ebert said that Kermit didn't really come into his own as a character until Muppets Take Manhattan, and I have to strongly disagree. He has a lot of heart and a lot of character in this one. He is someone who wants to make other people happy with his talents, and he has like goals and aspirations and dreams, and he doesn't always realize how much other people look up to him and I I just really like Kermit but who doesn't like Kermit? Yeah, this movie is an inspiration. So, with the origin of the Rainbow Connection in this movie, do you think we found it? I think there is still more to go moving right along (laughs) someday someday we'll find it thank y'all for listening this has been the rainbow connection i'm nathan bertram you can find me on twitter at bert nerdtram and you can find me on twitter at kenzie phoenix and we have our podcast specific twitter at muppets pod you can also email the show at uh, muppets pod at gmail.com Thank you guys for listening to us ramble for another however long this is. Our theme music is by Alex Conwell. It's a cover of the Rainbow Connection, fittingly. And that's the show. We will catch you guys next episode. Catch y'all on the flip side. Of the Rainbow. (laughs) I got you.
we watched all of the Disney movies. We left out a couple of the wartime ones. And one of them has this like very long in, like framing device sections with this same guy with his really creepy ventriloquist dummy. And I don't like that he keeps popping up in my life, honestly. I mean, like, I'm sure he was important at the time, but I don't like that. Like, because the other thing was in the 50s. It was like 50s or the 40s. This guy has been around for way too long in pop culture at this point. This is 1979. This is almost the 80s. No, I'm going on about this. I prefer my puppets to be soft and fluffy. This is that, a- That's a fair opinion. I mean, not everybody likes ventriloquists. That's fine. 